And if you'd open your Bible to uh, Acts chapter 16, we're going to be picking up reading there um, as Paul begins his second missionary journey. He is, um, last week we saw uh, the breakup between he and Barnabas, uh, workers together uh, on the first missionary journey, and Paul is now teamed up with Silas, and uh, Barnabas is teamed up with John Mark, and they have gone their separate ways, and that brings us to uh, Paul's mission, his second missionary journey as it begins in Acts chapter 16. So we're going to read, uh, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 10 this morning. The scripture says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, places he had been before. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for their observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go down into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we spend these next moments in study, Lord, that you would incline our hearts, as the psalmist says, to your word. Our natural tendency is to roll away, Lord, from your will and your way, to sneak out from submitting to your word. But Father, we pray that you would Help us to line ourselves up under your word and to submit to its authority in our lives, Lord. In terms of our conception of who Christ is, of what it means to be right before you, I pray, Lord, this morning that if there's anyone here who does not know you, who has not put their faith and trust in you, I pray that as they hear the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I pray that they would put their faith and confidence in that and not in their own goodness. And Lord, I pray that as we gather here this morning with different conceptions of what church is and why church exists and what the mission of the church is, I pray that your word would enlarge our hearts for the peoples of the world and that our hearts would be broken and we would be connected Lord, to this old vision in a new and fresh way that we might bear the burden of the gospel to those who need to hear it. Father, this is your heartbeat. May it be our heartbeat as well. May our heart follow yours, we pray. And may that give us joy. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, we live uh, in a day and age of new. We like everything new. We want new. We want improved. We want the old model uh, to be replaced by the new one um, with, uh, with better features. Uh, I, I personally, I grew up, um, was born in the 70s and grew up in the 80s, and so uh, I, I, have been, I have been stabbed to the heart when the new fails to live up to the old. Um, I waited my whole childhood for new Star Wars movies to come out. Uh, the, the, the glory 
what was The Empire Strikes Back, uh, one of, one of the, the greatest movies in my mind of all time, uh, I, was, I was embarrassed to say that I was a Star Wars fan when I saw the, the three new movies that they released in uh, 2001 and, and beyond. Uh, because they had the form of the old, uh, but nothing which made the old good. It was just all new. Now, in the 1960s, a, uh, a TV show came out, which was uh, subsequently canceled after just a few years on the air, Star Trek, what you would call the original series. Uh, and it was, to be honest, uh, a, li a little goofy, a little goofy, you know, some, some, some silly acting, some uh, silly costumes. But at the core, there was just something cool about this TV show, so much so that for the next 20 years, people dressed up and went to conventions with pointy ears on as fans of this thing. And then, in the 90s, their faithfulness was rewarded with a new show called Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, in which we have a new, different, uh, some would argue improved captain, a better ship, some special, better special effects, better sets. Uh, the old was there. What made the old cool was there, and that's what made the new successful. Uh, when that show went off the air, they came out with a new show called Deep Space Nine, which was awful and was quickly canceled. And then another show came out called Enterprise, and that was canceled because it was awful. The old, the originating idea so often has so much power in it that when the new comes along, if it doesn't have enough of the old in it, it will fail. Paul's mission to the Gentiles, his second mission is different. There will be different experiences. There will be a different team. There, there will be things which are completely unlike the first journey. But the new is like the first because it holds on to enough of the old. Paul has split from his traveling companion, Barnabas, they learned how to minister together, how to suffer together, how to, how to share the gospel together. And in their parting, we have seen a doubling of mission. Uh, God's kingdom is not stopped by this division over John Mark, which we looked at last week. And so the new mission is going to be different. It's going to be new but it's going to possess enough of the old that we're going to see the faith of Paul's faithfulness to his mission. We're going to see God's kingdom continue to roll forward. We have said over and over again through the book of Acts that what is required of stewards is that they are faithful. What's required of those who would preach and proclaim the gospel, what's required of the church is that it is faithful to its mission. God is moving his kingdom forward. God is relentlessly doing his work in the world. What determines whether or not we are part of it is our faithfulness. God will continue to work. Whether or not we, as individuals or as a church, are involved in it will be determined by our faithfulness. And so we're going to see a bunch of new things this morning, but the new things are going to have enough of the old in them so that, so that the mission will continue to roll forward. First, we see a new team in verses 1 through 3. We remarked last week that Paul took Silas and he went away on an overland journey through his homeland and then went on to the churches where he had preached. It says, in verse 16, that Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. I even read just a little bit farther than I wanted to. We see Paul revisiting the cities from the first journey. The church ought not to be so excited about the new, about new kinds of ministries, about new worship songs, about new evangelistic techniques, about new ways of doing things, that it leaves behind all that was good from the old. The church ought not to be so focused on growing the flock. Evangelism is important. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. 
but you can't just keep making believers. You've got to, in some degree, care for the ones you've already got. And so Paul goes back to revisit the cities where he had already been. He will continue to evangelize. He will continue to share. He will make new disciples. But he goes back to cities where he had been to care for the flock. Why is it so important that we shepherd believers? If you are a leader within the church, and when I say leader, I mean from the top, which in the Christian organizational chart is the bottom, the ones who are at the top from the world's perspective should be serving the most. If you are an elder or a small group leader, or you teach Sunday school, or you are a dad, or you are a mom, it is careful, it is important that you shepherd those under your authority well. Why? Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. God has placed you in a position of authority, no matter how you got there. If you're an authority over others, you are an overseer, and you need to pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock. Why? Care for the church of God, Paul says, which he obtained with his own blood. The church is purchased with the most precious thing in the entire universe the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most precious thing then in the entire universe, the church of God. And that means that those who believe, believers, the the church itself is the most important thing in existence. And when we find ourselves in authority, we ought to care for those of whom we've been given oversight of. The church does not exist to feed leaders. That's the, 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 a curious distinction between a flock as it exists in real life and a flock as it exists spiritually. A shepherd can look out at the sheep and say, that guy looks really tasty. Going to take him home and cook him up, right? You know, what do you eat lamb with? Mint jelly, right? Do you stick those little chef hats on lamb legs? Is that, is that what, Trey? Trey, do you put the little, little rack of lamb gets little chef hats, right? Yeah, thank you. Um, in the church, the, the, the church does not exist for the benefit of the pastor. The church does not exist for the benefit of the leaders. You know, as a leader grows in authority and, and oversight and care, he ought not to say, God has left me to this, led me to this place. Now I can purchase a gold car or an air-conditioned doghouse. And let me tell you what, it doesn't have to get that far. You don't have to be that successful to get into the realm of pastoral abuse. Those who do not care for the flock will think that it is just about numbers and dollars and not about individual lives. Paul goes back to the churches, not just content with numbers, and he revisits these churches and cares for them. We ought to take the same perspective for those whom God has placed in our lives as well. Caring for the flock. Paul also builds his team. He calls out new leaders. Notice it says that there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Timothy is a young leader, a young disciple. Where do the future missionaries and pastors come from? They come from out of the local church. Leaders are those who take initiative, who, who when they see a need, they try to fill a need. When they see a defect in the organization or they see something not getting done, you know, they pull on their boots, they hike up their pants, and they go to work, right? That means that the people who are in your church community Sometimes they can appear a little obnoxious who are saying, this isn't right, and why isn't this getting done? Those kinds of things. 
we know the difference between complaining, right, and somebody who sees a genuine need. Those are the people who are, who are the future leaders of the church. Those who have a desire to, to take authority ought not to be smashed down. The Bible says it's a good thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for someone to desire to be an elder or an overseer. They ought to be investigated and their qualifications examined. And if they meet the qualifications, then they ought to be recruited into service. It says that he was a disciple. It's not just that he was a talented speaker or that he was charismatic. He was committed, this is what disciple means, to the lordship of Christ and to a Christian worldview. It also says that he had good character, good public character. He was well spoken of by the brothers. It's interesting, when you look at the character lists in the New Testament, one of, of which is found in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. When you look through that list, the only practical hard skill from a professional perspective that's required of leaders is that they be able to teach, able to pass on the faith. I think that's interesting. The list of character qualifications in the New Testament is largely unremarkable from this perspective. All of the things that are required of leaders are required of other Christians as well. The general commands given to every believer. This means that leaders ought to have good character first and foremost, and not a whole bunch of other skills. Just because someone is a successful banker, lawyer, Indian chief, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, that does not qualify them for leadership in the church. Both Saul and Samuel, sorry, both Saul and David were impressive. What distinguished one from the other was character. Heart. If heart is right, everything else will be right. If heart is not right, everything else will be wrong. And so Paul meets this young man named Timothy. From the perspective of his old journey with Barnabas, Timothy is going to take the place of John Mark. He's going to go into learning mode, and he's going to watch Paul and Silas do their work. He has a right heart, and so he is given opportunity. As a church, we need to make sure that we don't set the standards for young leaders so high that we don't ever give them a chance to grow. If we expect perfection from our young leaders so that we can maintain our system and never offend anybody or hurt anybody through accidents, then we're really not giving full place to the gospel in our church. We need to give young leaders opportunity, explain to them what character, what good character looks like and the standards that they're expected to live up to, and then let them go and give them the grace to fulfill their mission. Where do leaders come from? Interestingly, I want to point something out, that leaders don't just come in the New Testament from the big cities. Jerusalem, Antioch, yeah, uh, uh, Antioch produces a Paul. Barnabas comes from Jerusalem. But Timothy comes from the little church in Lystra. And Gaius who is another leader who shows up later in the book of Acts, comes from the little church in the city of Derby. You may look around the country and look at big churches. You may look in this city and you may look at bigger churches and say, uh, are we a big church? From one perspective, the answer is yes. Apparently, 75% of the churches in the United States are less than 75 people. The majority of them are somewhere around the size of 35 that's what statistics say. Less than 5% of churches in the United States are 1,000 people or more, which means the megachurch is just a tiny slice, percentage-wise, of churches. But we may look around and say, we don't have the resources to produce more leaders. The New Testament tells a different story. The big cities may have dominated the headlines, but small churches produced leaders 
as well. The church that I grew up in, First Baptist Church of Union, was not a big church. As a matter of fact, most of the time that I attended there, it hung just at around 100 people. And yet, in my lifetime, that church produced seven pastors, seven men who are in the ministry this very day, right now, seven in my lifetime. Can a, can a smaller church contribute something to the kingdom? Yeah, absolutely it can. It can be a greenhouse for the leaders of the next generation. Many times we look at larger churches and say, we can't do anything. But the scriptures teach us that small can do big things too. Just look at the story of David and Goliath. It was not David's accuracy but his faith in the goodness and providence of God that allowed him to kill that giant. When we look at the harvest, which is plentiful, and the workers, which are few, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers. That's what we ought to be praying. God, help us to produce the leaders who will lead the church in the next generation, and then watch as they emerge their good character and give them opportunities. Paul does a strange thing at this point. It says Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. A belief in the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture means we actually have to talk about this. I'm not going to jump over it. Paul desired that this young man, Timothy, be given opportunity and, and he wants to take him along. And so he circumcises him. This might seem strange given what we just went through with the book of Galatians. I'm making weird sounds, not intentionally. Am I all right? Do I need to do something? I'm good. It's the battery. My son will bring me a battery. I love you, my son. Bring me a battery. Thank you. Um, the, the scriptures uh, point out that he circumcises Timothy, though, if you recall, in Galatians, this issue of circumcision is front and center. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so we ask the question, is Paul caving? Because Let's be honest, folks. When we see somebody say, live this way, and then we see them living a different way, that irritates us and makes us mad, doesn't it? Inconsistency drives us crazy. Is Paul caving here? Is he violating uh, his, his belief system? Is he preaching one thing and then going and doing another? Now, this will be relevant to contemporary life, so just stick with me. There's, a, there's, an, uh, there's an application to today here. Timothy and Titus are different and distinct. Timothy is a young, uncircumcised Jew. No. Yes. All right. Very good. Okay, I'm back. Just imagine that that never happened. Uh, Timothy and Titus are not the same. Titus is a young Gentile who did not grow up under the law, nor did he grow up in the synagogue. Timothy is a young man whose mom is a Jew and whose dad is a Greek, and that means he is an adult, uncircumcised Jew. And from the view of the Jewish people, he is an apostate. He is a violator of the covenant. People know who he is. They know his lineage. And so when he goes into the synagogue, if he's going to preach about the law, if he's going to lift up the law and say Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, a blessing to the Jewish people, they are going to look at him and they are going to call him a hypocrite. Now, Paul does not want to bicker about non-essentials. And so he urges Timothy to trust him and to take this big step so that he might be able to minister from a culturally sensitive position. It would be extremely unwise for you, and I'm not kidding, but this may sound funny, to, to, to plan to share the gospel with a few of your Muslim friends and to invite them all over for a barbecue and hot dogs, right? 
you know, to, to serve BLTs. That would be offensive to them. They would stop listening almost as soon as you serve the food. I was at a wedding. This is, boy, it's a long time ago. Um, and, and during the wedding rehearsal, I was, I was informed that I was going to read scripture. And so I showed up and I had my translation and my Bible. I brought my own Bible. And the guy was like, here, I printed this out for you. And I was like, I brought my own Bible, you know, because I'm a young Christian and, and I'm, 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 I'm super spiritual and I carry my own Bible. Do you have your own Bible? You know, that kind of attitude. Uh, and the guy says, okay, you're going to walk up to the podium. But as you get to the podium or before you get to the podium, you'll be standing under the cross and you're supposed to turn around and nod and make the sign of the cross as a sign of respect. This was in a Catholic church. And I thought, you know, I'm a Protestant, you know, Protestants, Catholics. And when the wedding actually took place, I refused to do it. I just kind of walked past. Now, was that a demonstration of gospel freedom? Or was that just a crass young kid? not being culturally sensitive. I think back on that moment, and I'm embarrassed at the fact that I wouldn't just have done what I was asked. Maybe there would have been an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, but it was just attitude. As as believers, there are standards which we may at times take upon ourselves in order to communicate with others, in order to not be offensive to others. In reading about evangelism among Muslims, I've learned that it is often common practice to share for quite a bit of time with Muslims before you even bring up the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, because Muslims find this idea offensive. And so this is a concept that you bring into the sharing of the gospel after you establish that Jesus is a prophet and that Jesus spoke in in words that are recorded in other books outside of the Quran. And you share all kinds of ideas about the holiness of God and then bring in the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and you speak about it in, in, in different terms than they have been taught. Because they find the concept that 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 Mary gave birth to the physical child of God. They find that offensive. And so not bringing that up so as not to offend them is loving them and caring for them. Titus was not circumcised out of principle because Gentiles did not need to become Jews. Timothy who was a Jew and was living like a Jew, was circumcised to open the ears of the audience. When I got to my grad school, uh, we, I had to sign a document that said that I would uh, not play cards, drink, um, dance with my wife, even at a wedding uh, 700 miles away. Is it 700 miles away? 400 miles away? However, uh, South Carolina. Um, you know, because that was, those were the standards. They had just removed... The, uh, the line that said that you couldn't have a beard or wear blue jeans to class. Beards and blue jeans were, back in the 60s were like the rebellious thing. And they didn't want their students to look like young rebels. They wanted their students to be young, upstanding, smart-looking, clean-shaven, tie-wearing young men. I didn't have to wear a tie in school. But the standards were there to present an image of wholesomeness and acceptability to the world. This is an attitude that we ought to embrace as we seek to go out on mission. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 19. I don't know if I'm going to get through the whole passage today. I might, I might, I might. Uh, 1 Corinthians 19, verse 19. Paul says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews... I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, that's the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. Paul's mission strategy 
is that he wants to make sure that he does not offend the people that he's going to so that they will look past the person and hear the message. He's not going to compromise the gospel when it comes to the Gentiles. But this young man, Timothy, who is known to be a Jew and identifies as a Jew, he wants him to be able to speak to them from their perspective. In what way... Do you, in your character, do you, in your approach, need to adjust so that you don't give offense before you've even started speaking the gospel? Uh, maybe for some of your coworkers, maybe for some of your coworkers, they see your character and your behavior at work, and they would not believe that you're a Christian based on the way that you talk about other people based on the way that you act. Maybe that needs to change. Isn't it worth putting yourself in a position of a servant to others, giving up some of what you perceive as your rights so that you can reach others for the gospel of Christ? The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus laid aside that he took on the form of a servant, that he might serve those who needed to be saved. Why would we not do the same? Why would we not take on the form of a servant to serve others? We see a new team. We see a new mission in verses 4 through 5. The, the mission is not just to preach the gospel, but it's also to strengthen the church and to unify it. I'm going to zoom past this just a little bit. My pastor or my preaching professor who's just retired said, you know, when you, when you, when you have a point, you know, that you need to get past, just pound the pulpit, shout loudly. Just insert that in your notes and, and move quickly. It says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, to the churches, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. They're traveling through different ethnic regions, different regions of geography, and they are strengthening the churches in their faith, and the numbers of the church are growing. Ask this question, what holds us together as a church? What, what truly holds us together? Is it our political unity? Is it that we all vote for the same things? No. Is it that we all like the same kind of music? Is it that we are all of the same kind of ethnicity? The answer is no. We are distinct and diverse in all kinds of areas. But in the essentials, we ought to be unified. And the unity that we find ought to be in the gospel. There are, there are three kinds of doctrinal issues from my perspective. There are ones that are gospel-related. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to take our sin upon himself, that whoever looks at him in faith and says, I need a Savior, would be purified and saved from their sins. Anything related to that idea, in my mind, is non-negotiable. The inerrancy of the word, the exclusivity of Christ, the fact that we're called to take the gospel to the nations, these are things that are non-negotiable. There's a, a second level of, of issues that hold us together, and those are ones that determine our fellowship. Convictions about baptism, the Lord's Supper, about who can be an elder, those are issues that determine whether or not you could worship in this actual congregation or whether you're going to think, no, this church is wrong about these issues or that. And then there are those that are matters of conscience, issues that Christians differ on. How the end, when it comes, will play out. I would say that directly related to the gospel is the idea that Jesus will come again physically to rescue his church. I think that's a clear issue from scripture, but when he'll come and how he'll come and how he'll rescue the church, those are things that smart people differ on. And so we ought to disagree vigorously, but keep our sleeves rolled down when it comes to those issues. 
as they travel from place to place, they deliver the decisions of the elders that were made in Acts chapter 15, and they say, live in this way, serve one another, love one another, don't offend each other. And so the church successfully integrates the Gentiles and grows because they're respecting the fact that the church is being planted in different cultures and there are different expressions of, of, of the way that the church is growing in areas of non-essentials. We ought to expect if we're part of planting a church in another people group or perhaps planting a church in a different region that they're going to do things differently than we are. And that ought not bother us as long as they're preaching the true gospel. We then see new horizons in verses 6 through 9. There is something frustrating happening here. The, 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 the church, or, or Paul, and, and Barna, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, rather, are, are traveling around. It says that they, they go into these regions that they've been before, and they're, they're, they're trying to maybe go into different villages in those regions, in Phrygia and Galatia, but they find that the Holy Spirit forbids them to speak the word. That must be frustrating. They're on this mission, and they, and they can't preach there. And, and they, they come to a region called Mysia, and they try to go into Bithynia, but it says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so they, they keep moving. They pass on to Mysia, and they go down to Troas, a port city, and there they wait. They find that, that they're frustrated. They're forbidden. They find closed doors. Verse 6 is they're blocked by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says they're unallowed by the Spirit of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting title. It's the only place that shows up in the New Testament. Um, kind of like Acts chapter 5, verse 3, where Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then a moment later, he says that they've not lied to man, but to God. Kind of a covert way Luke is teaching that, that the Holy Spirit is God. That, that there's unity between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're not the same, they're distinct, they're equal, and yet they share the same essence. The Holy Spirit is the, the Spirit of Jesus, but he's not Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I don't know who said it, but somebody said that a God that we can fully understand is not worthy of our worship. God exceeds my understanding of him, and I think that's okay. He's God, and I'm not. How had they been blocked? They, they want to share the gospel. They want to minister. But, but God is stopping them. Was it visions or dreams or inward prompting? Silas, Acts 15, 32 says, was a prophet. Maybe he had, he had spoken, thus says the Lord, we should not preach there. And Paul's like, I took you along on this journey, and now you won't let me say anything. Why? Maybe they ran into opposition. In any case... We're unsure how. They just knew that their mission was frustrating, that the doors were closed on them. And so they were waiting and they kept moving. As a Christian, you may find yourself in a position where you want to live out the will of God in your life. You, you want to follow him. You want to live your whole life on mission for God. And yet you find yourself waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. The Bible describes waiting as patient waiting, but not passive waiting. Listen to Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. The, the psalmist who's waiting in the miry bog, which, by the way, has nothing to do with my family. We do not maintain the miry bog. Um, but I always think, everybody thinks of me when they hear about the miry bog, um, whatever. Um, the, 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 the psalmist is in this place, he's in this pit, and he cries out to the Lord. He cries out continuously. Jesus said, keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on praying, waiting patiently. Patient waiting, but not passive waiting. Notice what they do. They don't just stop and sit down when they're forbidden and say, oh, well, I guess God just doesn't want us to preach the gospel. They move on to another place and they try there and it doesn't work. And so they go to another place and then something happens. They keep moving because they have standing orders. 
The scripture tells us all kinds of things, all kinds of ways in which God wants us to behave. We need to be careful as Christians that we don't take God's words and try them once. I I tried to forgive that person, but it didn't work. I, I tried to share the gospel, but it didn't work. I tried to trust God, but it, but it didn't work, and so I quit. We're called to pray and try and wait, and the Lord will deliver us. Paul and Silas and Timothy kept trying because the scriptures at the beginning of the book of Acts say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they know what they're supposed to do. They just don't know where they're supposed to do it. And so they keep on trying. They go down to the port city of Troas, and then something happens. Now, just, we'll come back to that in just one moment, but let me just ask, answer this question. Why were they frustrated? Why, why, why they're, they're trying to to travel this way as they, as they go on their journey, but they keep getting stopped. And they keep getting, well, from your perspective, it's this way. They keep getting sent over to Troas. They're, they're, they're going over here, and they keep trying to go down, but they're getting stopped. Listen to the first line of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Peter writes his letter to the very people that Paul was attempting to minister to, and God blocks him. Why? Because Paul's trying to go this way, but Peter's coming up this way in his ministry. Peter's sending out his evangelists and the guys that he's working with, and his team is working in this area, and and Paul's trying to go into that territory, and God's like, I got it covered. Just keep moving this way. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Go over here to Troas. Okay? You go. We ought not to see frustration as failure of God because God's got more than just one plan going on. He's got one big plan, but he's got lots of ways in which he's fulfilling that plan. Okay? You shared the gospel with someone and it didn't work. They say that somebody needs to hear the gospel seven times on average before they respond to it. Do you know if you're like number three or number four or number five or number six? Just keep being obedient. And trust that God is the one who's going to work it out. Just be obedient. He's the one with the plan. We don't need to see his plan fully. It says, I'm going to, I got to finish up here. Ah, we'll make it through. Don't worry about it. Uh, It says that in Troas, something happened. Verse 9 says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. He'd been forbidden once and then twice, and this just massive frustration probably filling him. Why can't I preach the gospel? And they they go to Troas, and in the middle of the night, Paul has this vision. He's in Troas, and and it's a port city, and he probably can't see it, but a hundred miles away to to the northwest is the land of Macedonia, a place where the gospel has not yet gone. And Paul sees a man of Macedonia. He'd probably met them in his travel, and he he identifies their accent and the way that they dress. And in this vision, a man from Macedonia is standing there, urging him and saying, come over, come, come over, come to Macedonia and help us, help us. We need help. A hundred miles away, is Macedonia by by water. This is a new and a dark territory. Paul will encounter things on this journey that he has not yet encountered. He he will encounter witchcraft and evil spirits and all kinds of of things as, as he travels further and further away from where the gospel is to go to where the gospel isn't. Very few of us who understand the gospel believe in something called universalism. That's the idea that all people will be saved. Uh, This concept most recently summed up, maybe, um, by Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins. If you know anything about Rob Bell, you'll know that he pretty much always says everything he says, and then he says, well, maybe, um, kind of hedging his bets. But he, this man in his book speaks about the fact that all people will be saved. 
that God will somehow win, that all people will make it into heaven, and that that's an optimistic view of the world. The scripture does not teach that. It teaches that, like in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Good Bible-believing Christians reject universalism. But as David Platt says, many of us operate according to a functional universalism, where we hurry on about our daily lives, not on mission. We don't think about the unreached fields. We don't think about the unreached people. We view our bank teller as our bank teller somebody who we give money to and they give us money or receipts and we get a little Jolly Rancher candy or a dog biscuit or maybe we, we take the pen from out of the little carrier, you know, hey, free pen, you know, and, and, and that's all. I mean, they're just, they're this human component in the machine. They're not someone who needs the gospel. There are 2,500 languages throughout the world that need God's word. There are seven billion people in the world, and that means that one-third of them have no one heading towards them and no one planning to. 2.5 billion people. And Islam is out there in the middle of the world like a raging tiger, like Saul, waiting to destroy the church, but waiting for those who are bold to come in and to share the gospel. And Paul getting ready for a journey by water. When he gets on that boat and he heads into this city, he will be beaten, he will be imprisoned, he will be persecuted, but he sees the people spiritually coming to him saying, come help us, come bring the message to us, come over here and help us. And so Paul is going to get up based on his knowledge of God's word, based on his knowledge of the promise of the father to the son, Psalm chapter 2 verse 8. God says to his son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. I'll make the ends of the earth your possession. How is God the Father going to give the nations to Jesus? One way he starts is by sending Paul to preach the gospel. Think of the promise of God to his people. One verse maybe you use as a fighter verse. You, you bring this up in your daily devotions, but maybe you don't know the whole thing. You're, you're, you're fighting against some anxiety, and you say, Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. But what does God say next? He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so... Paul receives this vision that he is not just going to go into the same cultures where he's been and use the same gospel presentation. He's going to have to do new things, hard things. And he doesn't do it because it's easy. He does it because it's right and because there are people who need to hear the gospel. And so he's going to get on a boat and he's going to go. Uh, let me just sum up very quickly by saying this. We see a big change now. It's so big but so subtle, you might not even see it. It says in verse 10, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You may not see it, but it says immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us. The entire book up to this point, 16 chapters, has been describing stuff that's happened to other people, but suddenly the narrator of the book is there. We, which means that Luke, the writer, converted probably right there in Troas, has responded and said, yes, this is worth devoting my whole life to, submitting his whole life to the Lordship of Christ and saying, Paul is going to do something daring and wild, and I am going with him. We, us, Paul stepping out in faith and bringing those who believe by faith along. I think there's a big difference between growing a big church full of converts and, and keeping them or, or preaching the gospel. And when people say, you mean if this is true, this changes everything about my life. And this means that I ought to completely reorient my life around this mission. And I, maybe, maybe I'm called to go. And we ought to say, yes, we love you, but go. So how is it with you today? You believe the gospel, or maybe you don't. You've heard the gospel. Do you 
respond to it. And if you've heard it and you believe it, how does the reality of that affect you and your life? Are you sharing it, being obedient to it? Is it the driving mission of your life? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, and I thank you for this passage. Lord, I pray that we would internalize these truths. Lord, that we would live them out. May we not be those who who see the, the mission laid out in the scripture, but then do not step out in faith and engage it. Instead, Father, I pray that we would be like Luke, seeing Paul, seeing Paul step out on mission, seeing the the leader all those years ago stepping out in faith, that, that we might see him and then say, we conclude that God has called us to preach the gospel. And may we then, as a church, as brothers and sisters, seek to identify leaders among us, to identify those whom God has called to preach the gospel, and then send them that they might do it. And may we not exclude ourselves from that call. Father, I pray that each and every person in this room who's responded to the gospel, that they would be open to sharing, to discipling, to ministering, to leading within the church as far as you have gifted and qualified them. We pray that we be faithful. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's heard the gospel for the first time, I pray that they would be encouraged and changed by it and that they would submit their lives to you. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy toward us. We do not deserve your kindness but you give it to us anyway. We thank you for that. May we live lives worthy of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we close, if you'd like to come forward and pray with somebody, uh, there should be someone up here to pray with you uh, if you'd like to come forward. Let's close with this song. I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride see from his hand